Amazing Grace would be the, the theme song of our current sermon series, if there was one. Maybe you would argue it's the theme song of the whole of Scripture. Uh, but we are looking at the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to Galatians this fall. A letter which is all about the gospel. Believing the gospel, defending the gospel, keeping in step or living consistently with the gospel. But if you're, if you're here for the first time, or maybe if you're here for the 201st time, maybe it's worth asking the question, what does that word mean, gospel? The word, you may know, means good news. But did you know that in the first century, in the Greco-Roman world, the world in which this New Testament was written, that word outside of the Bible was used often, uh, and it was used to describe an event. It was an announcement of something wonderful that had happened that should bring you joy. So, for instance, all right, it, was used, it was used about history-making, world-changing events. So, uh, for instance, when uh, the Greeks defeated the Persians... At the Battle of Marathon, right, messengers were sent out after that to declare the gospel, the good news of Greece's victory. That's how the, that's how the word is used, right? When Caesar Augustus was born, that was the, the announcement of his birth was called a gospel because it meant good news of peace for the Roman Empire. And so when we come to... Uh, the gospel in the Bible, the gospel of Jesus Christ, we see that it, too, is an announcement. It's good news of victory and peace that Jesus, God the Son, has given himself for our sins so that we can have peace with God. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus, that he alone has fought and won the battle, and we enjoy the victory. And that was the gospel that Paul had shared with uh, people living in the region of Galatia. And those people had believed the gospel. They'd put their faith in Jesus and they formed little gospel communities, what we call churches. But then some other guys came along. They came in behind Paul and they said that Paul's gospel wasn't quite right. That it was missing some things. You see, Jesus' gospel originated with Jewish people. Jesus himself was Jewish. And his first followers were all Jewish. All the leaders of the early church in the book of Acts were Jewish men, Jewish people. And the Jews, uh, in order to be accepted, right, well, not in order to be accepted by God, but uh, Jewish people observed what we call ceremonial laws. And there's a reason I'm giving you all of this backstory, because you may be like, wow, what have I just stepped into? But don't worry. My hope in giving you this is that it makes sense of what we're about to read. Okay? So a little over a thousand years before Jesus... The Jews, when they were forming the nation of Israel, had been given by God ceremonial laws, clean laws. 
And those laws separated them from the people around them, from the nations that did not know God and did not worship God. They were meant to form a boundary so that the Israelites would not worship the other gods. And they also had a second uh, purpose. These laws also taught the Israelites that God was holy and that they were unholy. And to come into God's presence, you had to be cleaned. Something had to happen to you in order for you to come into God's presence. That was the function of the ceremonial laws, things like food laws and circumcision. And so, why am I giving you that history lesson? Because the people who were living in Galatia that Paul shared the gospel with, they were not Jewish people. They were Gentiles. People like you and me, they were not ethnic Jews. They had never worshipped the God of the Bible. They had never followed any of those ceremonial laws. And so when these teachers came in after Paul, we'll call them Judaizers. Paul calls them false teachers. They said, "Mm, see, because you're Gentiles, you're going to need a little bit more. You're going to need faith in Jesus and circumcision and the ceremonial law. You're going to, in essence, what they said was you need to become Jewish so that you can be accepted by God. That was how they challenged Paul's gospel. That was their false gospel. And if you were with us, uh, if you've been with us now a couple of weeks, you know that Paul was very upset by this. Because he says in chapter 1, to change the gospel, if you're going to tamper with the gospel, you make it a non-gospel. It's no longer good news. And so I tell, I tell you all of that so that you can understand what it is we're about to read. Paul has been telling us his own story, his own experience with the gospel, how God transformed him by his grace. And now we're going to get a little bit more of that story in chapter 2. So if you would, uh, if you haven't already, turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. If you're using the church Bible, it should be on page 972. Paul writes this, then after 14 years, 14 years after his conversion, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running Or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, 
For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, Cephas is another name for Peter, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May God add his help, uh, not to just the reading, but also the preaching and the hearing of his word. Let's pray. Lord, we pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, whatever is of me, I pray that it would be blown away like chaff in the wind, but whatever is from you, Uh, would find deep roots in our hearts and would grow up in faith and in all the fruit of the Spirit. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever heard the phrase, you need to pick your battles? I feel like I heard that phrase a lot in regards to my parenting. For some reason, there are some people looking knowingly at their spouses and smiling. I don't know what that's about. Um... Or how about this phrase, you've got to choose which hill you're going to die on. I, um, I remember one of my, one of my father-in-law's principal, principles for raising teenagers. So my, my in-laws and a few other couples were with us last, last year in the fall. We had a parenting conference. And one of the things that he shared, one of his principles for raising teenagers was, don't make a whole lot of rules, but the ones you make, you keep. Right? Why? Consistency is key, but consistency is hard. So the fewer rules you make, the better. Right? And the reason we say things like pick your battles or choose which hill you're going to die on is because we cannot die on every hill. We cannot pick every single battle. We have to be, right? Why do I say that? Because we're humans. We're limited emotionally, mentally, physically. We have to choose where we're going to plant the flag and defend. And that means we're going to have to let other things go. And what we see here, and, 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 I, and I don't know how good I am at that. Right? I don't know. If you're like me, we tend to, I, I, I tend to plant my flag on the wrong hill. Uh, or I try to plant my flag on every hill. And what I find is that my forces are usually overrun very quickly. Right. So what we have in this passage is an example of the Apostle Paul planting his flag, uh, picking his battle and choosing the hill that he is going to die on. And it is the most important hill. It is the hill of the gospel. Right. What we see is that Paul, when he goes to Jerusalem, he gets in a fight. It's a word fight. It's not a physical fight. But all the same, he comes up in opposition against some false Brothers, but we also see that he comes into fellowship with others. So we're going to look at this under two headings. First, we're going to look at a gospel fight, and then we're going to look at some gospel fellowship. First, the gospel fight. 
Paul visits Jerusalem, uh, and if you're keeping track of the story, this is the second time he's gone. This is probably the visit from Acts chapter 11. Uh, the book of Acts is a historical book in the New Testament. It tells of the growth of the early church, and many of the letters that we have, or some of the letters we have, you can find that linked in that history in the book of Acts. So this is probably uh, Paul's visit to Jerusalem uh, at the end of Acts chapter 11. Uh, he was living in Antioch, which was to the north. Uh, they received a revelation, uh, a vision, or a prophecy that said that the churches in Judea were in need, were in a famine. And so Paul and his team gather uh, some material resources to take, to take down to Jerusalem and care for them. We'll say more about that in a second. But while he's there, he says he meets with those who seemed influential. He meets with the, the leaders of the Jerusalem church to tell them the gospel that he's been preaching to the Gentiles. And he says that he does this in order to make sure that he hasn't been running in vain. Now, what does that mean? Right? Paul, Paul says he, he wants to lay his gospel out before them to make sure that he's not been wasting his time. Now, if Paul's got the true gospel, which he believes he does, we've established that through chapter 1. If Paul's being faithful to share that gospel, then why would, why would Paul think he's wasting his time? Why would he think that maybe he had run in vain? One pastor puts it this way. Puts it this way. He says, nothing was threatening Paul's certainty. Paul knew he had the right gospel. But something was threatening his fruitfulness. Here's what, here's what that means. If Paul gets to Jerusalem and he, sa- and, he, and he gets with Peter and James and John and the other leaders there and he says, all right, here's what I've been preaching. What about you? And they look at him and they say, uh, well, actually, no, you're wrong. Then that threatens all of the work that Paul has been doing. Right? It gives credibility to the Judaizers who have been saying, see... We told you Paul was wrong, so it gives credibility to them, but it also splits the church. Now we have a Jewish church and a Gentile church. We have two different churches. And it is useful sometimes as um, splits, we might say, have been in the past, in the history of the church, and the Protestant Reformation, that's our heritage. Those, those splits also have caused significant damage. And if you can think of a moment in church history when unity is incredibly important, right? The church, is, the church has just been born. She's just really getting started. And so this is a moment to make sure that everybody's on the same page. And so when Paul says, I'm worried that I might have been running in vain, he's saying, if they, if they say that my gospel is not the true gospel, then all that I've been done, now that, that, that puts all of that in a shady light uh, and maybe even says, I've been uh, wasting my time. And so that's what he, he goes to do. He lays it out, and he makes a bold move. He tells us that he takes Titus with him. And Titus is an uncircumcised Gentile Christian. And Paul takes him right into this meeting with these other Jewish Christians. Now, maybe that doesn't seem like a big deal to you and me, but in first century Jerusalem, Jew, Jew, Jewish people did not have fellowship with Gentiles, right? That, 
So it's one thing for the Jerusalem apostles to say, yeah, 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 no, Gentiles can be accepted. Uh, we're, we're brothers and sisters with them. That's great. It's one thing to say that. But what happens when you put a flesh and blood Gentile right in front of them? Would they be willing to embrace Titus as a brother in Christ? Poor Titus. I, like, I wonder if Paul told him, he probably did, ahead of time, like, hey, just so you know, you're going to be the test case. Um, don't, don't sweat it. Everything will be fine. But so, so Paul brings Titus along with him uh, to really see if the Jerusalem apostles will put their money where, the, where the mouth, their mouth is. It's kind of like saying, you're not a racist, but are you willing to share your dinner table with someone from a different ethnicity? Right? That's, that's really where the proof is in the pudding. And that's why Paul brings Titus. And what we see is that there are what Paul calls in verse 4, false brothers. Some false brothers have slipped into this meeting And he says that they're there to spy out our freedom in Christ and bring us back into bondage. We're going to talk more about that in a little bit. But since Titus is a Gentile, these false brothers think that he needs to be circumcised. He needs to become like a Jew in order to be accepted, not just by God, but in the church. And what does Paul say? We did not yield to them in submission for a moment. He does not give in. He does not back down. And Titus is not forced to be circumcised. And Paul says in verse 5 that he picks this fight. He chooses this battle because he wants to preserve the truth of the gospel for other Gentiles, people like me and you. Now, as my friend Jason says, Why should that matter on a Tuesday afternoon? Why does all of that, what does that have to do with you and me? A couple things. One, gospel compromise is a deal breaker. To change the gospel, to add to the gospel, is not merely a difference of opinion. We're not talking about who should be baptized and how they should be baptized and who's in charge in the church and what kind of church government's right. We think those are, those are true things and good things, but there are things on which fellow Christians disagree. But the gospel, we cannot disagree there. That is, that is, a, that is a matter of first importance. Paul calls these people false brothers. They are... They, they may have the name of brother. They may say, we belong in the family. But Paul says they do not because they hold to a different gospel. Also, we see that the greatest trouble to the church doesn't often come from outside, but comes from inside. And so gospel compromise is a deal breaker. That's an area where we have to hold the line and say, Nope, this, this is where we will, this is, this is the hill we must die on. There, there may be some other areas where we disagree and maybe we'll skirmish a little bit on those hills. But this is our fallback point. We cannot, we, we cannot give up this one. Gospel compromise is a deal breaker. Um, 
And so what happens is Paul opposes these false brothers and he wins. But what about the other apostles? What about those who seemed influential? Will they accept Paul and his gospel? And what we find there is not fighting, but fellowship. Look again at verse 6. Paul says, from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Now, Paul's not being disrespectful to the Jerusalem apostles. What he's doing is distancing himself from the Judaizers who said, now, Paul, he's, he's off on his own. He's a lone ranger. Uh, we, we represent the Jerusalem apostles. We have better authority. And so what Paul is saying is, you know what, these guys may be influential in Jerusalem, but just because they were apostles before me doesn't make their authority any better than mine. We're both apostles, okay? And here's what Paul says. Those who seemed influential added nothing to me. In essence, they look at Paul and they say, yeah, your message is complete. There's nothing we would add to that. Go on your way. You're you're, you're doing the right thing. Look at verse 9. There's unity in the gospel. It says, When James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. So we see that Paul, that, that thankfully, by God's grace, we don't have two churches. We don't have a Jewish church and a Gentile church. We have one church in the gospel. That the Jerusalem apostles give the right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas and probably Titus as well. Right? So, and they even say, now this is, so there's unity in the gospel. And then in verse 10, right, what about this note about they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Remember that Paul had come down to offer relief to the Jerusalem church while it was suffering. And that ongoing care, actually, Paul would keep doing that. He would go to other Gentile churches that were wealthier and had more material resources, and he would collect from them and bring that back to Jerusalem. And what that shows us, one, is that concern for the poor was a mark of the Christian life, the early church life. It also shows us their solidarity, that they are united together in that, in that mission and even in the way that they express kindness to one another. That those, right, that they see themselves really as one big family. That those to the north and the Gentile areas who have needed material resources are willing to give it and send it to those in the south who do not. So there's unity in the gospel. But there's also diversity, right? Unity does not mean uniformity. Just as Peter is called, Peter and the others are called to the Jews, so also Paul says he is called to the Gentiles. They give each other the right hand of fellowship, and then they go their ways to their specific ministries, right? Paul and Peter have the same message, but not the same mission field. And so it's okay in the church, right? to have a diversity of gifts. In fact, that is exactly how God has intended the church to work. And not every church will look the same. And not every church will have the same calling. Right? That there will be many in some churches who are, who are called in this particular area. And many in other churches who are called in this particular area. 
right? So we, we don't pick fights over who has the better ministry. We pick fights over the, over the message, the gospel. Maybe we don't pick fights. Uh, but right, we, we stand firm on the gospel. We recognize unity there. But we're willing to also recognize diversity in how that gospel goes out. Okay? Now, I want to come back to something. And I'm going to close with this. Why does Paul fight? Why does he take a stand? Why does he not back down? Look at verse 5. He says, because he wants to maintain the truth of the gospel. Right? So Paul doesn't back down because the gospel is true. He wants to stand for truth. But I want you to notice, that's not all. Paul doesn't simply just stand for the truth of the gospel. We not only fight for the gospel because it's true, we fight for the gospel because it's good. Look at verse 4. What happens if the truth of the gospel is lost? People are left in bondage. If the gospel is compromised, then people are not set free and they are left enslaved. And that is not good. We want people to be free, not enslaved. How does that happen? Well, the gospel says that you are accepted by God based on the work of Christ alone. Period. Not hyphen, not comma, period. You are accepted by God based on the work of Christ alone. Nothing more is necessary for your salvation. The chains are broken. The burden is removed. I'm free. So how does adding more conditions to that gospel put me back into slavery? Well, if you add something to that, if you put something after that period, now there's something for me to do. There's another condition for me to meet. And now all of a sudden, I'm under a burden to prove myself to God, right? God is not pleased with me yet. There's more for me to do. I have to prove myself so that I can be accepted by him. If you're familiar with John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, uh, Pilgrim, the main character of the story, begins with an intolerable burden on his back. And all he wants to do is get rid of it. And he's, he's, all, he's started on this journey finding a way to free himself of this burden. And a well-meaning person steers him towards Mr. Legality. And Mr. Legality says, well, if you can just climb to the top of Legal Hill, then you will be free of your burden. Except that Pilgrim can't climb to the top of Legal Hill. And he cannot be free of his burden. But there is another hill that Pilgrim climbs. And at the top of that hill, there is a cross. And when Pilgrim reaches the cross, his backpack, the burden is cut from his back, and it rolls back down the hill and disappears forever. One is the offer of free grace in Christ. The other is a false gospel that says, if you'll just try a little bit harder, God will be happy with you. 
The real gospel says God is already pleased with you because he is pleased with his son, Jesus. And if you are in him, then you are free forever. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I pray that each one of us would experience the real freedom of the true gospel. There are lots of different ways, Lord, that we can put ourselves or be put back into bondage, into slavery. Man-made traditions, rules, laws. But, Lord, none of these things will save us. All of these things will leave us on a hamster wheel that just wears us out. And so, Lord, I pray for each person who hears my voice that this morning, whether for the first time or the thousandth time, would hear this gospel and be set free by your grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our uh, prayer focus